Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. In the first half of this week's show, you'll hear about the latest revelations involving Volkswagen and its controversial testing procedures for diesel cars. In the second half of the program, we have our monthly business and sports segment co-hosted by Michael O'Keefe, Chief Executive of Teneo PSG. And this month, we're joined by Philip Brown, Chief Executive of the IRFU. First, we're going to start with the latest revelations in Germany about Volkswagen and its testing for diesel, this time involving monkeys and humans. Now, I'm joined on the line from Berlin by Derek Scally um, of the Irish Times, who's been following this remarkable story uh, over the past uh, number of days. Derek, you might just fill us in to the background on this. Yes, um, it's about two tests that um, a lobby group financed uh, by Volkswagen, BMW, Daimler and their major supplier Bosch. This lobby group uh, financed two separate tests, one in the US in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the other was in Aachen in southwest Germany. The US test, um, both tests had something in common. They wanted to find out, they wanted researchers to find out what are the effects of uh, diesel emissions, in particular uh, nitrogen dioxide on um, humans in the German case and on apes, uh, monkeys in the um, in the American case. Uh, the American test took place in 2015. Uh, the German test took place in 2013. So uh, this was in the, the, the final years before uh, the Volkswagen uh, diesel gate scandal broke. And in, uh, the, this has caused outrage in Germany because... Um, the notion of testing on animals is always a is always an emotive issue, um, but uh, particularly uh, the notion of testing on humans is completely outrageous in Germany because, um, for historical reasons, that uh, in the early days uh, of uh, the Holocaust, the Nazis thought they could, rather than using poisonous gas, they tested. Um, exhaust fumes on people. People uh, with mental and physical disabilities uh, were put into vans and the hose was hooked up and the exhaust fumes were pumped into the truck. So we have, on the one hand, we have the, the diesel gate moving into an, a next stage just when you thought it couldn't get any worse. And on the other hand, there are very uncomfortable echoes of um, of of the past. So this is the story. And um, what we've basically learned is that uh, the, the head managers in, in Volkswagen and the other jar com- companies, uh, German car companies, say they were shocked, shocked to discover this was going on. 
And what we've also learned is that these tests were very much uh, an attempt by uh, this lobby organization they financed to try and spin the notion of clean diesel. This is what they were introducing um, a decade or more ago to sort of as the environmentally friendly uh, answer to transportation in the 21st century, clean diesel. We all know since the Volkswagen affair that that is a fraud, but they were looking for scientific information that would show that, yes, it's not just the car company saying this. We have tests to prove this is the case. And we know from um, from leaks of the, the test on monkeys in the U.S., that um, it was far from it that actually older diesel cars were actually better for the monkeys' uh, lungs than the new German diesels. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And it claimed a senior casualty at Volkswagen this week. Yes, we had um, Thomas Steg, the um, the chief lobbyist, basically of the Volkswagen Group, uh, has he admitted he was he knew about the US tests. Uh, and he um, said, if I had my time over, I wouldn't allow that to go ahead. Uh, he has been suspended now. Um, people have said there's a people in Volkswagen say there's a big investigation going on, but he's the biggest head to roll so far. Environmental groups, including Greenpeace, have said this is just a PR stunt. They want more senior people to go, and they say, look, they're still conducting a basically open laboratory tests and open experiment on the German population with cars that are emitting far more noxious fumes than um, than is permitted under EU law. Um, we also had a uh, Daimler has suspended its uh, chief environmental officer. So this is once again we're seeing um, we're seeing heads starting to roll on this. But of course the question is how far up in these companies does it go? If this was a crucial part of their clean diesel strategy, how likely is it that the chief executives of these companies weren't aware? Um, what uh, scientific uh, research was going on to uh, back up their claims. Okay. Michael McAleer, what impact has this had on Volkswagen reputationally and importantly on their car sales? Reputationally, it's horrendous, but in, as if to prove that the punters only really care about air quality and environmental issues when it affects their pockets, sales have actually increased. So it sales has Volkswagen cars have increased since this whole scandal yeah. blew up. So they're the, currently the best selling car in the world. Even this year, their sales are hit 10.7 million. They're up 4.3 percent. Uh, shares have risen partly on the back of people. There has been a cultural shift within the company. So we're dealing with issues that arose under the previous management. But that's their spin. And as Derek has pointed out, a lot of people aren't buying into the fact that there has been such a significant change. The biggest question has always been who knew what and when. And those questions have not been answered by the company. And uh, they continue to prevaricate over the and procrastinate over revealing mm. the details of who do you want. And this triumph of sales for Volkswagen, is it still of diesel uh, cars or are we talking about uh, petrol or maybe hybrid or electric cars? It's a cross. Well, they're still getting, they're trailing some of the other brands in terms of developing new product. They've committed to invest uh, over 25 million over the next, or billion over the next while to uh, change their their image and to develop electric vehicles and to take part in that whole drive towards electric electric vehicles. But certainly within the European market, diesel still plays a big part. The biggest push for Volkswagen Group and their 12 brands in the last while has been in China. The Chinese have never really got into diesel, so it has all been petrol sales. Um, the clean diesel issue was a big thing in the US market. They wanted to crack into the into US sales where they were performing really poor. Um, and they, they tried it with this. They cheated 
and they admitted to it, it hasn't really hit their sales in the US market to yeah. any great sub- substantial degree either. The, 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 f- the focus has been then on re- renewing their, their, their message across the board. It, the company was micromanaged under the previous uh, chief executive, uh, Winterkorn, who was described at the time as North Korea uh, without the labour camps by uh, Der Spiegel. Um, under the new uh, leader Matthias Muller, it has adopted this uh, more openness of ex- accepting ideas and a, a freer reign within the brands. But whether that has changed the culture within the company, it, it takes yeah. a long time to identify that. Derek, has it affected VW sales in Germany? Germans took great pride in their car industry, didn't they? Yes, um, I don't have the exact numbers, but I know from anecdotally that the um, the diesel market has, has collapsed. Uh, I was looking at reports recently where German car dealers were saying they just cannot give diesels away. Uh, it's a time of transition here. And I think um, people are really starting to wonder, um, yes, I have a diesel. I still don't know what I should or shouldn't be doing because Volkswagen is very much sending out mixed signals in the US. It's mea culpa because they were caught. Um, there are much tougher regulations in the US. In um, in in Europe, uh, many people seem to think the, the the attitude of Volkswagen is well, go whistle. You know, they're they're the biggest concession to people in in Europe because there isn't the same class action possibilities. Is oh, you have a problem with your old Volkswagen diesel? Well, would you like to buy a new Volkswagen diesel? And that has annoyed many people, uh, particularly because um, 2018 is going to be a very it's going to be a crucial year in Germany because in several German cities for years now. Now, uh, the level of pollution, um, particularly of nitrogen dioxide, which is this noxious gas in diesel fumes, um, has been well over uh, EU limits. EU limits is 40 micrograms per cubic meter in Stuttgart and in, in Munich and in Frankfurt and other places uh, where we're talking 70, 80 regu- measured regularly by um, by special stations. And uh, we're, we're starting to see the first court cases. There was a court case this week in Munich. There's going to be others in Stuttgart, I believe, and in Dusseldorf. And um, the, the the companies have been let's people critics would say the companies have been had the the politicians in their pocket for quite a long time, but uh, the environmental groups are now attacking them. They're using EU law and saying, well, you can you can fiddle or claim your cars, you know, on the road or on the testing ramp you can argue whatever you want but the proof of the pudding is in the eating or in the breathing and the, the air in german cities in many cases is sure. filthy so environmental law is going to catch up on this with people unsure whether they're going to be able to drive their diesel to work uh, in a year's time and uh, that's had a huge hit on sales by the way michael do we have any idea of how dublin let's say fares in terms of air quality well i think derek is actually looking at some figures yesterday weren't you derek Yes, I was. I mean, uh, and so the the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they have stations all around Dublin, and it's very much very interesting to look at. Um, in some areas, um, I think in I was looking in Ringsend and in Rathmines. There's definitely uh, days when um, it seems that nitrogen dioxide levels spike well above um, the forty. Uh, micrograms per cubic meter. And what I'm not sure of is how many days uh, you can have a spike before you suddenly have a problem. Um, but again, Germ- Ber- uh, Dublin mm. isn't Stuttgart. Stuttgart is a big city, sure. uh, a big car town. They make the cars, they drive the cars. But what we're seeing is just this: this there's a huge cultural shift. And if it didn't come through legislation with politicians, they've been very we- wary of pressing uh, German okay. car makers to actually do physical upgrades. Um, so it's it's just a matter of, you know, people are voting with their feet or with their cars. But one of the things is that the politicians led 
this policy to a certain extent because the car companies mm. were developing petrol cars. Europe, Europe seen the diesel uh, move as being a way to crack into petrol-driven markets and to push the CO2 emissions. So the focus and the, uh, from the political circles was on global warming and on CO2 emissions and they would, were less impressed or less interested in Air quality, and they were caught. They've been caught on the hop sure. on this. Okay. Uh, Peter Mandelson identified this some time ago, whenever the the Dieselgate uh, story broke, and he said during the negotiations when they were setting standards, they focused so much on on CO two emissions, and they hoped that the air quality issue would mm. trail behind, while the Americans were focused in, uh, primarily okay. on. Finally, on, Michael, I mean, you're somebody who uh, follows the uh, motors industry very, very closely. How long more has diesel got? Well, according to uh, Minister Nocton, 2030 in Ireland, he's he's suggesting that... It's a long he, time away, 12 years. It's not that long time when you think that the average car ownership is nine years, so you might you might be only changing two cars between now and then. And if he was to introduce this, this ban on new cars, how he's going to finance it, how he's going to handle it is going to be a massive issue. Because the thing to remember is new cars are... You can swap and change policy with new car owners who are invariably the wealthiest in society. The people who are buying the used cars, the oldest cars, are the poorest in society who cannot take that hit very quickly. So you have to allow for them to change in a slower fashion or provide them with incentives or support systems to make these, these changes. When we made the flip from engine-sized CO2 back in 2008, what it did invariably was leave many people who had the longest commutes, who were stuck travelling the furthest distance in the oldest car, paying a lot higher taxes than the wealthier individuals in the, the suburbs who were commuting with their BMWs and their Mercedes. Yeah. Okay, all right, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Michael McAleer and Derek Scally. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, IRFU Chief Executive Philip Brown will join us for the Business of Sports segment. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our monthly Business of Sports segment, I'm delighted to welcome Philip Brown, Chief Executive of the Irish Rugby Football Union into studio. It's been 20 years since Philip first became CEO of the IRFU and in that time he's overseen a period of significant change with the game moving to a professional status. Lansdowne Road being redeveloped to become the Aviva Stadium. Provincial and international teams enjoying a lot of success on the field. And most recently Ireland bidding to host the 2023 Rugby World Cup. Philip is also well known in rowing circles. He represented Ireland at two World Rowing Championships and continues to have a volunteer involvement in that sport. Philip, you're very welcome to the studio. Um, let me just ask you about the Six Nations. Obviously, it's, uh, we're on the cusp of it now. Ireland uh, playing France at the weekend in the first game. Uh, a big, important tournament, obviously, for Joe Smith and his team, and we wish them well. Uh, but tell us about the importance for the IRFU in financial terms. Yeah, it's, it's hugely important. It's, it's effectively the financial engine for, for the sport here in Ireland. Um, and I think the same could be said for Scotland, Wales, and Italy, and indeed England and France. Um, for us, uh, if the most significant part of our revenues are generated uh, on the back of television rights that are sold around mm. the Six Nations uh, sponsorships. And of course, TV3 are, have the rights now for the first they time. Have, indeed, yeah. And so that's uh, it's a, a new opportunity uh, for us to actually deal with a, a, a new broadcaster. It's always traditionally been with RTE 
Um, and uh, so for us, we're delighted to have a new broadcaster in. It uh, says something about the broadcast market in Ireland, actually, which is which is buoyant enough um, in, in sporting terms at the moment. But it's listen, the Six Nations is huge. Um, Let's sort of try and can we put some numbers around it? I mean, in terms of what's the total income of the IRFU on an annual basis now? Total income of the IRFU at the moment is in and around 80 million. Um, and uh, I'd say about over 80% of our income is generated on the back of uh, of the Six Nations. Uh, so it's that important. Um, and uh, between gate receipts, uh, the sponsorship that we generate uh, around our national shirt, which is with uh, Canterbury at the moment uh, as the shirt supplier, then you've got uh, Vodafone, who are the shirt sponsor. Uh, you've got uh, the broadcast rights, which are sold centrally through uh, the Six Nations, and they're sold in the UK, in Ireland, um, and in uh, in France and Italy. But then there's a wider uh, audience uh, around the world, and those rights are sold as well. So uh, there's a huge there's a huge amount of revenue generated there. There's the sponsorship of the Six Nations itself with uh, NatWest this year, previously with RBS. That's hugely important. Um, and obviously, the, the the gate receipts for us are uh, part and parcel of that lifeblood yeah. in terms of not only generating the revenue, but actually getting people into sure. the shop window. I should ask you about that actually, because somebody I mentioned to somebody that uh, we were having this interview, and they said, "You got to ask them about the ticket prices." Uh, this person has uh, tickets to the three games, three home matches: Italy, Scotland, and Wales. I think it's seventy euro for an East Upper ticket for Italy, and eighty for the Scotland game, and, and ninety for the yep. Wales game. Pretty saucy, and it got them wondering whether they're going to have to shell out. I mean, New Zealand are coming for the Autumn Internationals later this year. Are they going to have to shell out a hundred or more for those tickets? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's supply and demand, isn't it? And I mean, we've we've set our ticket prices. We look at uh, the range of events that are happening in in in, in Ireland and Dublin, uh, whether it's concerts, whether it's other sporting events. Uh, so we don't come up with a price in isolation. It's and, and we look at the market itself and what the market can bear and what we think it's worth. Um, and to be honest, the proof is in the eating of that particular pudding. That we've had full houses last autumn. We've had full houses for the Six Nations as long as I can remember. And uh, that's really important to us. Uh, it's not only about generating the revenues, but it's also about having a full stadium because I think... That, for that, atmosphere, yeah. For atmosphere and also for sponsors. Nobody wants to be playing uh, in a half-empty stadium. But what about for the New Zealand <coughs> matches? Are we? Is there potential there for a €100 Euro, um, ordinary stand ticket? I, very definitely. Uh, I think, uh, we haven't made any decisions on, on ticket prices, but I mean, New Zealand is probably one of the cachet matches um, in, in world rugby. And uh, I think everyone would want to see an Ireland-New Zealand match. Just on on the Six Nations, Philip. Just um, in terms of the ability to grow and grow revenue, you said it's so important in terms of eighty percent of overall revenue. But where do you stand on expansion of the Six Nations, reconstruction of the Six Nations? There was talk of Argentina. There's now talk of bigger markets, and obviously with the TV money and sponsorship, you know, would you be in favour of maybe expanding the Six Nations or reconfiguring the Six Nations? Do you think longer term? It's uh, it's a good question, and uh, it's it's. Pretty complicated um, uh, in many ways. Uh, the first complication is if you expand the Six Nations, uh, where are you going to find the space in an already congested season yeah. to play the additional matches? Um, there has been talk about maybe you could reduce the Six Nations from a seven-week window to a six-week window. Well, maybe if you left it at a seven-week window, you could bring in another team and play more matches in that seven-week window. The reality is, from a player welfare point of view, that just doesn't stack up at all. Um, and we certainly have been pretty vociferous about ensuring that we don't change that seven-week window with the existing structure of the Six Nations. Um, the other issue is, obviously, that 
the professional game in Ireland and indeed Scotland, Wales uh, and, and Italy uh, in particular is absolutely dependent on uh, Six Nations revenue. So the notion of promotion and relegation is a hugely difficult one to actually uh, absorb because if you got relegated, effectively you pull, you could effectively destroy the professional game in one fell swoop in any one of those countries. Um, so how do you deal with that? And, and um, nobody has the answer to that particular one. Um, so it's been looked at. There's a second tier Six Nations, uh, which mm. is organised by Rugby Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, could we bring an additional team in? Uh, if we did, uh, you know, would they, could they come up the, the top of the second tier could play in the in the in the in the in the Six Nations itself uh, from from year to year, but I think the big issue is for us is promotion and relegation because it effectively destroy our financial model if you got relegated. And on a, on a slightly separate aside, um, we're on the back of a what was deemed a very successful Lions tour as well, and not too many people might be aware of relationship between the the four nations and 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 the Lions. Could you explain? Maybe perhaps how that works, and maybe explain a bit of detail the revenue that's generated in the back of those, and why a buoyant lines is important for the RFU. Yeah, uh, the lines is effectively owned as a brand by four shareholders who are the four home unions, as we call it, which is England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. And uh, obviously, there's huge and long tradition of touring in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, the curious thing is, is that. The Lions don't actually generate a huge amount of money per se for uh, the shareholders. What they do uh, do is generate a huge amount of money for the country in which we're touring. Mm. Um, and that's part and parcel of the, the whole economy of international rugby in the global season. If we didn't have Lions tours, uh, the difficulty for the Southern Hemisphere would be they would be coming up here on an annual basis uh, for Autumn Internationals, not seeing any <coughs> of the revenues, yeah. all coming to us. Uh, and the, there will be an imbalance or an economic imbalance uh, in the whole system. So the way in which it's rebalanced is by the Lions Tour. So every uh, four years we have a Lions Tour, and those monies go into into the into the Sanzar pot, and that helps uh, put a bit of financial balance back into the whole setup. And just one 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 last question for me, um, Philip. For now, is it's just on um, Rugby Twenty Three and 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 the bid that was and and I suppose um, we had Paul Duffy in here and and John Tracy um, recently and and both were were supporters of of the bid and disappointed obviously like everyone that that we, that we didn't succeed. Um, where do you stand on on uh, looking at this again? You know, have you completely ruled out ever looking at a bid again? I know it's pretty soon afterwards to be making kind of decisions like that. Yeah, well, I think the first thing we'll do is we're doing a review. The government. Um, are in the process of appointing someone uh, to to do a review, and I think can we learn any lessons from it um, from what we've done? And I think that's the first the first thing we need to do. Um, uh, I suppose there wouldn't be a huge amount of energy and appetite for rushing off and 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 put, dipping our toe in the water again uh, at this point in time. Um, but having said that, you never say never. Um, I think we put together a really good bid. Um, I think the politics, the timing. Uh, possibly mightn't have been just quite right, um, and we had you know reservations about the, how the process uh, ended up, um, which were pretty well published or publicised. Um, but you know, I think 
Ireland is well capable of hosting a World Cup. I think that was acknowledged by Rugby World Cup themselves and World Rugby. Um, I think we could have done a fantastic job. Um, I think the popular vote amongst the, the broad rugby public around the world would have been, they would have loved to have had a, the opportunity to travel to Ireland to, to, to a Rugby World Cup here. Um, it's not to be. Um, it's disappointing. Um, How much uh, did it cost, Philip, to put that bit together? It cost us uh, in and around uh, about three and a half million. Um, who who and picks up that tab? Is it the government it, or the RFU? We've, or? we've picked up a, a significant proportion of that tab, um, probably about half of it, and the government uh, have picked up the other half. Right, OK. Let's talk about the provinces a, a little bit. They've obviously, on the field, they've been successful over the years. Um, Munster, what, two Heineken Cups uh, as well as in Leinster won um, three. And you know uh, various uh, various other honours as well. Um, they're all owned by the union, which is uh, quite unique. Unlike in in France uh, and England, where they're you know each club is is owned by a separate entity. And we've seen huge money pumped into the game in France and England. And we've seen big powerhouses like Toulon and the Saracens uh, emerge. It's made it very difficult for the Irish provinces to keep up and to keep pace mm. uh, financially with with those clubs. Just wondering, maybe down the road, maybe it's five or 10 or 15 years down the road, is there going to come a time when the RFU will have to look at the ownership structure of the provinces in a different way and perhaps allow some external investment in? It's a good question. I know it's something that we are considering all the time. Um, we've had workshops uh, amongst the, with the four provinces and, and the union just looking at, at where can we generate uh, new revenues and new business models. Um, the reality is, well, the curious thing actually is, is that uh, we don't own the provinces. Actually, the provinces own the IRFU. Uh, they are the four shareholders of the IRFU. So uh, at the moment, the model works uh, reasonably well. Um, I think it's as good a model as there is out there uh, at present. Um, we don't have uh, access to the same number of people with deep pockets that there are in, in uh, France and England. Um, but that's an unsustainable business model as well. I mean, the reality is it's only sustainable for as long as there's a queue of people willing to put their money into a loss-making exercise in France or <coughs> in England. And, and that's, that's the scenario. Um, in England, uh, we see there's at least two clubs or possibly three clubs up for sale at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a, a benefactor comes in and he spends four or five years and then he says, well, listen, I'd rather have a boat in the Mediterranean than have a club uh, which I go to yeah. every two weeks. And so he shuffles off stage left and someone else has to sh shuffle on stage right sure. with a, a Well, it's pockets. a model we've seen in professional soccer in England, isn't it, for, for many, many years. But there always seems to be someone to come along. <laughs> Maybe for different clubs, <laughs> yeah. but there always seems to no, be somebody uh, there. As a, as a, it, it's a model, um, but I think comparing rugby and soccer, um, you know, they are two completely different sports in terms of scale <coughs> and in terms of the sort of uh, revenues that are generated and in terms of popularity. So I, you know, it's not really a sustainable model uh, as such. In fact, the club game by and large around the world is is sustained by the revenues that are generated out of the international game. Mm. Um, and that, that so how long can the RFU and, and the provinces sustain the current model, do you think? We'll keep going as long as we can. I mean, we, we are doing reasonably okay at the moment. Um, We've taken a view that we simply can't pay the sort of monies that are available in France and England. Um, uh, and so what is our best way of mitigating that particular risk, the risk of uh, players, uh, flight risk of, of players going to England and France? Well, 
the answer is is invest in the lower end of the ends of the game in terms of making sure that we can uh, produce a greater number of uh, players of higher quality more quickly so that if the top players wish to leave at a certain point in their career that's fine well we have someone to come up and take their place and we're beginning to see the fruits of that particular investment uh, coming through and that's David Nusifora, Joe Schmidt uh, have had a, a huge yeah. role in, in in that as indeed have the provinces to be fair the provinces yeah. have been great and well, particularly their, Lancer, their, I mean they seem to seems be fantastic. a huge production yeah. line of talent yeah. coming through yeah. the Leinster on, on, on the pathway though Philip just <coughs> and one of the things that I, I suppose not a direct criticism but just an observation is that um, the, the playing pool it still remains relatively small and, and, and I suppose a, a long-term strategic priority of the RFU is to widen, I suppose, that player pool, particularly at kind of the minis and underage level, so that there's more and more. Obviously, there's more players playing, there's going to be more players coming through. Um, what's your view on how the RFU might, and I know there's been some work done already, but how it might go about expanding that away from maybe perhaps the traditional hotbed, which is the school's uh, system and to maybe bring more people into the game because rugby, as we've said, has, has never been more popular. TV audiences prove that, demand for tickets proves it, but to try and get the population playing wider. It's a, it's it's not a it's not a, a problem which is just confined to rugby. Uh, the whole issue of recruitment and retention of uh, of players in in field sports, in particular, is 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 problematic for the GAA. It's problematic for soccer, and it's equally problematic for 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 rugby. Um, I think that one of the key things we have to do is is provide different offerings. Um, not everyone wants to spend thirty weeks of the year. Um, playing 15-a-side rugby. There's a lot of people who would like to play 7-a-side rugby. Some people want to play tag rugby. Some people want to do blitzes. Uh, on a, Some people would like an eight-week season. Um, and so it's it's really about uh, listening to what people want. Um, and I suppose one of the challenges for a lot of sports is that uh, they're generally administered by people in their 50s and 60s whose uh, formative years were at a time when the, you know the sport and the format format of the sport was quite narrow. It was fifteen aside rugby in a club competitions, uh, and that was your social life, and that was your uh, your spare time spent doing that. Unfortunately, you know, twenty year olds this day and age don't think like that anymore. They have lots of other distractions. Uh, yes, they want to be involved in sport. Yes, they want to stay fit, um, uh, but they don't necessarily want to play the sport in the same way that we played thirty years ago. I suppose that brings us on to female representation in the sport, uh, Philip. And obviously, in the wider world that we're in at the minute, uh, pay equality is is high in the agenda, and uh, female representation at the highest levels and boards and corporate land and so on is high on the agenda. What what about for the RFU? Because I was looking at your website earlier and looking at your committee, and I think there were twenty three Blazers lined up on the pitch uh, having a team photo taken. And there seemed to me only to be one woman uh, as part of that 23. And maybe that position has changed since, uh, no, since not, that photograph, uh, photograph went up. But it seems like a very small representation of, uh, of women, particularly when you're trying to expand the game uh, no, it's know, a, in a it's playing a, sense. I think it's, a, it's an issue for a lot of organisations is making sure that we're more inclusive and particularly that there's a greater level of diversity on our boards. Uh, Mary Quinn is bought, was brought on, I think, three years ago onto the union committee specifically to try and address the issue. Our governance as it is at the moment is that we're a representative organisation so we don't get to choose who comes to sit on the IRFU committee. It's dictated by clubs who elect representatives to the branch and the branch elects representatives to the union. So there's there's a, there's an issue in there for us in that we have to try and find ways of uh, making sure that there's a greater level of representation uh, of women, yeah. uh, not only at, at union level, but also at branch level and at club level. And what we really need to do is try and encourage women 
uh, to get involved in the administration of the game at grassroots level, and they will feed through into the into the system. In the meantime, we have to find ways and means of ensuring that uh, we do have a greater level of uh, female representation on the the union committee. Uh, so we actually have a governance review in place at the moment, and it's an issue that uh, is you know certainly very much in. In, in their sites, and they're going to hopefully come back with recommendations this year and uh, be interesting to see yeah. how they propose sounds, to deal with it. It sounds <coughs> as if this isn't going to change anytime soon. I just wonder if the government have a role in this, because obviously they, they provide funding to the IRFU at various levels. They, they certainly do. They, uh, any any organisation that uh, is uh, in receipt of uh, government funding, any sports organisations in receipt of government funding, has to sign up to the uh, Voluntary Code of Governance. Um, and, uh, and so... You know that's the road we're going down. So our governance review is going to have to deal with that and find the solutions. Uh, and it's a balance between being a representative organisation on one hand, on the other hand, making sure that we have a, uh, an organisation that's governed with uh, an eye on diversity and uh, equality. Just on 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 the professional system, <coughs> Philip, and, and the players and and so on. Like your tenure has kind of transcended that amateur to professional era and in, and so on. Um, how does it work when it comes to you know the contract negotiations with the with the with the big stars, and I suppose the role of agents, which has become, you know, very prominent now. And some guys represent themselves, but there is a kind of this emergence of a an industry of of agents who who, who represent players. And I suppose, what's your your view on that? Yeah, I've I've uh, I've seen the change from the amateur game to the to the to the full blown professional game that we're in now. Um, I think that I mean the first the the first thing is that. Um, most players uh, use agents now, and uh, and they do so for a number of reasons. One is um, they don't feel comfortable in dealing with their employer in a in, in a negotiation situation, and, that, and that's fine. Um, I think uh, there is a bit of a industry around agents, um, and it's obviously uh, in some agents' interest to move players. Mm. Um, so what we have, and we've worked very hard with um, the players' association here. Uh, to put in place a set of regulations to actually regulate agents so that they uh, you know, behave in an ethical way and in a, uh, for the benefit of, of the players. And uh, I think that has been a very useful exercise. And uh, so it's it has changed significantly. I originally used to negotiate nearly all the contracts. Uh, then we handed over a tranche of contracting to the provincial CEOs um, and uh, gradually... I've pulled back from it, and uh, really the negotiations are carried out in terms of provincial players uh, with uh, the uh, provincial CEOs and then with the players that are of a national interest. Uh, David Nusifora obviously works very closely with the provincial CEOs in negotiating those contracts through. Just, just on, the, on the players, because I suppose <coughs> they're, they're the first real, I suppose, professional athletes to live and breathe in, in this country and... and um, you know, they, they, a lot of them have, have done very well and fair play to them. And, and I think, you know, they've been national treasures and so on. But what has been the role, I think, how the RFU has learned from maybe the first wave of professional players to the second and third wave and maybe teaching players about careers after rugby. Some of these guys have gone on to have very successful business careers and are entering business. Um, and I suppose, would you like to see, there's about three questions in here, sorry, would you like to see some of the, the superstars of maybe the, the golden era, the Ronan O'Gars and Paul O'Connell one day graduate into hire a few coaches and maybe of the national team? Yeah, I mean, the way it's great, I was involved at the, at the outset in terms of um, the Players Association. We recognised um, back in around 2000, I think, uh, that 
in terms of negotiating with players on a collective basis, we needed a, a forum in which to do that. And we also recognised that we had a duty of care to players uh, to ensure that, you know, at the end of a rugby professional rugby career, that they simply weren't uh, left uh, um, in a situation where they had no way of earning a living and no supports and no mentoring or anything like that. So we have always been supportive of the Players Association. At times it may not particularly seem so when you read the media, um, but the, the reality is we have a close working relationship with them and it's it's actually, it's almost a joint venture uh, between the union and the players, uh, the whole, this whole professional game thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the Players Association have an important role in that in terms of doing the things that would be difficult for us as the employer to do. So we help fund the Players Association. It allows them to bring in the expertise, to provide supports for the players, whether it's mentoring, whether it's psychological support, whether it's uh, lifestyle support, all of those things. Um, so uh, they, the, the players, um, we definitely are of the view that uh, player welfare is, and the treatment of players uh, in Ireland is one of the strong selling points that we have in terms of trying to retain players in the system. In terms of how has it changed over the years, I mean, we had... Uh, it hasn't changed that much, to be fair. We had uh, players, we, you know, uh, I was talking with Keith Wood today about something and uh, we were just recollecting back uh, in his day. And I mean, he was a part-time, working mm-hmm. part-time um, with, uh, I think, permanent TSB at the time uh, and then became a full-time player. Um, so that has all changed. Well, we, I suppose the real difference has been that we are now in, um, we have contact with players at the age of 15 and 16 and by the time they get into the academies, they're already well prepared uh, for the professional game. And then we provide them with the in the academy system with all the supports they need to actually succeed in the professional game. So I think players who go into the academy system now have a much better chance of succeeding. And, and, and I think the guys who are, who are there now, I think, have come through the system are getting good advice, good mentoring, yeah. good mm. financial support. Yeah. I think the, the first wave of fellows who probably transferred from amateur to professional was yeah. probably more of a challenge because they were earning yeah. probably more than they, yeah. they had, had expected and so on. I mean, the downside is <coughs> that, you know, players can become uh, institutionalised um, and, you know, there's always the issue of, you know, sudden injury and the, the end of their career and, uh they suddenly find themselves in a situation where you know every moment of the day was plotted out for them, and then they're no longer employed as a player, and now they have to have to find a, fill it for themselves. And so there's there are issues. It's, I you know nobody's saying it's an easy way to to uh, to earn your living. It's 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 it it has its its own challenges. Having said that, it's uh, for a lot of the players, it's a wonderful way to. Mm-hmm. To be to be paid to do what you enjoy yeah. is is a great thing. Finally, Philip, um, there are Leinster fans listening here might be wondering when the RDS is going to be redeveloped. I know they've planning permission for the new stadium, but I don't think the funding is in place yet. And Connacht fans might be wondering when they're going to uh, see a, a brand new stadium, uh, maybe something akin to what Ulster and uh, Munster have had in recent years. Can you shed any light on developments there? Not particularly, other than, it's as you say, I think uh, the planning permission is there in terms of the RDS, uh, Mick Dawson and uh, the the Leinster branch obviously working very closely with uh, Michael Duffy and the RDS. It's a funding issue and I think if, if funding is available and, um, you know, I think it'll happen um, very definitely. Everyone wants it to happen. Connacht uh, obviously working away on their own plans um, 
Uh, I haven't seen uh, anything of substance uh, yet, but uh, they understand the the, the uh, challenges and the constraints of the of the of the sports ground, um, which is probably not ideal. Um, having said that, the investment in any stadium uh, is going to be significant, and it has to stack up economically. One highlight of your two decades at the helm and biggest challenge for the next few years. It's got to be got to be the the, the Grand Slam in, uh, in 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 2009. I mean that was, you know, I, there's a lot of people who never thought they'd live to see the day uh, that we we pulled that one off. And uh, I mean it, it was it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and you know, great tribute to the players, great tribute to the coaching. Um, and yes, were you hiding under your seat when Wales were taking that kick in the very <laughs> yeah, last the, seconds of the match? Wasn't, wasn't the, the fingernails were well gone at that stage. I can tell you. Um, and I mean the other thing, which is which has been a highlight, uh, I think, has been the the way in which uh, we have become a, a much more consistent outfit in terms of international rugby. Um, and again, uh, I mean, the, I was there in the nineteen nineties, where you could have a fantastic match one week and the next week it was the bottom of the bottom. Uh, and it's that has changed. It's we are a competitive rugby nation, and uh, so that's 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 really that's been fantastic in terms of. What the future holds, uh, it's it's really about uh, going back to what you said, Mick. Is you know we've got to grow the game, uh, and in order to grow the game, we've got to have the shop window right, which is the professional game, and it's trying to find the balance between the two and make sure that we can have both living uh, in peace and harmony. And it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. You can't have the professional game unless you have the grassroots game, mm-hmm. and equally, without the professional game, there will be no grassroots game because it's the shop window and it generates the money. All right, Philip Brown, thank you for joining us and good luck to the lads in the Six Nations. Thanks very much. Now, to finish, Mick, uh, let's do our business of sport wrap. Financial services firm Deloitte has once again released its Football Money League, uh, charting the massive revenues of Europe's biggest clubs. Manchester United have pipped Real Madrid for a second consecutive year to retain top spot as the highest revenue earner uh, with £581 million in revenue uh, last year, which might surprise some people because obviously they didn't win the Premier League. Uh, they won the Europa League, sure, yeah. but um, you, you know they, they were there were no great shakes last season in Mourinho. No, and and, and I think what this uh, Deloitte report um, points to is is I suppose the, the revenue generating power of the football club, not necessarily its wealth. So if you look at the the top ten of the twenties, you said are from the English Premier League. I suppose United's um, revenue pulling power is based primarily on the power of its brand, its TV money, but also its overseas sponsorship deals. But if you are, there are other um, rich lists which would put the likes of Manchester City, uh, PSG and others way ahead of Manchester United who come maybe sixth or seventh in that league. So this is more a table based on the revenue generating um, success of the club, not necessarily its its, its, its financial wealth. And you're absolutely right. Um, the uh, the prize money that's associated with, with winning these things doesn't necessarily translate into where you come in this league either. It's all about broadcasting rights. I mean, uh, Brighton and Bournemouth suddenly, you know, two small clubs in English football, but they're suddenly two of the wealthiest clubs in the world now, by virtue, simply by virtue of the broadcasting uh, revenue bonanza that's available to them. No, absolutely. And we, we've discussed this a few times before. Like, There's obviously, a, 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 and others have alluded to this, there's a very competitive marketplace when it comes to broadcast rights. You have new entrants to the market with all this disruption that's happening with the likes of Amazon and Facebook, which we've discussed before. If you look at only this morning, it was announced that BBC have paid over 200 million for just the highlights clips alone for the Premier League for for the next few years. So, yes, I, I think the, the, the likes of the, the, the Bournemouths and Brightons, by, by the fact that they're in the Premier League, 
puts them into the, some of the richest clubs in, in Europe. Yeah, okay, let's stick with soccer on a slightly different scale where uh, the League of Ireland season is almost upon us and Dundalk have been sold to an American investment firm. A Peak Six uh, sports-led consortium has purchased uh, all of the club shares, uh, which will see current owners Paul Brown and Andy Connolly step down. Uh, Peak Six spokesman Jordan Gardner said that they've spent months assessing the opportunity and getting to know the club. Uh, Mick, have they lost their mind? Well, time will tell, and like we, the League of Ireland doesn't have a great association with with um, these kind of groups coming in and, and, and buying them as your, your the League of Ireland. I mean, it really is a backwater. I mean, what the the Electricity SSE Electricity League winners get one hundred and ten thousand euro for winning. But then again, I, I suppose the, 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 the big prize is even if you make the Europa League group stages um, as a Champions League qualifier out of Ireland, you guarantee somewhere between six and twice, ten million. twice in the history of the competition that's happened for this a league is true. But twice in the last ten years, I suppose, and I, and I think the 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 view would be that with enough investment that there's probably a, a 50-50 chance every year of, or, or even a one in three chance of, of making and I suppose these people are, are investing the money based on that premise I suppose what is interesting Do we know how much they paid? Um, we don't but what, 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 what we do know I, I suppose in this one is that um, you could end up with, with superpowers within the League of Ireland uh, depending where this is going to go whether it could end up towards the North Atlantic League which has been discussed before obviously Ray Wilson who we, we know has put a, put a put money into Shamrock Rovers um, there's maybe potential there that they might become um, one of the one of the three superpowers Cork City with a big support base and now Dundalk I think Dundalk's big priorities are going to be reinvestment in their infrastructure um, they don't become just another League of Ireland case study where they it's a bus boom story you know so yeah okay and finally let's uh, finish with the Super Bowl which is uh, coming up um, you want to talk about this in particular yes I'm dying to talk about it all morning actually and uh, yeah just a couple of numbers just to bear in mind um, there'll be over 500 million worth of, of, of money spent on advertising 110 million viewers Kieran, and 30 second ad costs how much I have Almost no your own salary, five million, Kieran. For five million five for million. the yes, second ad. Closer to home, though, we have the Dublin Racing Festival. Twenty-four thousand people expecting Leprechaun. Big move by HRI and Leprechaun. There, we wish them well. Yeah, yeah, not quite the Super Bowl, but anyway, we, we do wish them well. All right, uh, Michael O'Keefe, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Derek Scally, Michael McAleer, Philip Brown, and Michael O'Keefe. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer, and Dan O'Neill helped us with the research on the business of sports segment. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed daily on Twitter and Facebook I'm Kieran Hancock until next time take care Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.